0: thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Like uh, many of you, I just got back from being out of town for Thanksgiving and, <clears throat> you know, I'm always amazed how quickly things shift from Thanksgiving to Christmas. You know, and it actually seems like Christmas doesn't really give Thanksgiving a chance to finish up. Usually precedes it by a couple of days at least. But, um so, I was, I was out in, in Chattanooga with my family for Thanksgiving, and, and my daughters were watching TV, it's like two days before Thanksgiving, and they're actually showing Christmas specials. You know, I mean, Thanksgiving's got to feel so slighted. But I don't know why I'm always amazed at that quick change. I mean, it happens every year, and there's also a part of me that very much gets it. So, I, I remember when I was a kid, I, I absolutely loved Christmas, and I so looked forward to it. And as soon as we got past Thanksgiving, like we have this week, I mean my sights were set squarely on Christmas. And my anticipation only grew as, as each day passed by and, and the tree became increasingly overrun by presents. And I remember when I was small, I would, you know, continually go up and, and, and check the labels on those presents you know, to see which ones were for me, and, you know, when I found one, you know, I'd, I'd pick it up, and I'd, I'd closely analyze it, you know, its size and its weight, and, and how, how it shifted, you know, when I shook it, and it would start me wondering, you know, what's inside, you know, what does this, this gift look like? Well, you know, just as I looked forward with eager anticipation for that day, so also Around the time of the first century, there was a heightened sense of anticipation, an eager expectation of the coming of the gift of God, the promised Messiah. And it's against the backdrop of that expectant aura, that uh, that expectant um, sense, that Jesus opens up and reveals the answers to this long-standing mystery. In Luke 4, starting in verse 16, Luke writes, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Our dear triune God, we thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace to us. For the most precious gift of yourself and of the fullness of life that is now ours in you, dear Jesus. Please be with us this morning as we explore the richness and beauty of who you are as revealed to us in your word. It's only in your precious name, dear Jesus, that we can and do pray. Amen. In this passage, couldn't you just feel how thick the air was with anticipation? As Jesus just read the centuries-old prophecy, and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him after he sat down. And it's in the suspense of that historically pivotal moment that Jesus unwraps this long-awaited gift. Essentially, he says, you know what? You don't have to, to wonder anymore what this gift of God looks like because you're looking at him. And in terms of what blessings will come to me, will come with with the gift of me, whether the same fullness of blessings that were promised to you centuries ago through the prophet Isaiah. So what were those promised blessings? To understand that, we have to go back to the time of these prophecies. We have to go back to understand who Isaiah's initial target audience was why he wrote to them, and how they would have heard that message. Well, Isaiah wrote this prophecy in Jerusalem in the 8th century B.C. Now, this was long before Judah was taken into exile into Babylon. So while the first part of Isaiah's book is really targeted toward his contemporaries, those living in Jerusalem with him at the time, his target audience for this last part including our passage today from Isaiah, really were the future generations of God's people. And notably, those who will be taken into captivity by the Babylonians about 100 years after Isaiah's death. So those in in exile would have been very familiar with Judah's long-standing, unrepentant rebellion against God and of Isaiah's earlier warnings against God's impending judgment, and also of Judah's forthcoming captivity. They themselves were experiencing that judgment in a very real and and tangible way. And they knew full well that it was Judah's sin that led to that. But along with those warnings, they were also familiar with the surpassing message of an assured hope of salvation in the Lord that permeated all of Isaiah's writings. And with with those exiled Jews in mind, that Isaiah rise to them to comfort them and to also to proclaim the good news of God's promised salvation in the Lord. Okay, so how would those Jews and exiles have actually heard that message? Well, they would have heard Isaiah 61 as the culmination of a message of real hope, of God-accomplished hope, of being freed not only from their physical bondage, but also from their bondage to sin. Isaiah paves the way for that by describing the promised deliverer as God's chosen servant upon whom his spirit rests, who would bring Jacob back to God, Be rejected by men. Be wounded for our transgressions. Bear the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors. And redeem not only Israel, but also the foreigners who would join themselves to the Lord. Having given them that fuller understanding of the deliverer, Isaiah wraps all that up in chapter 61 using a word that would have deeply resonated with them using a word that was filled with meaning, and that word is liberty. Okay, so why is liberty so loaded? Why is that so filled with meaning? As shown in Leviticus 25, liberty is used in the Old Testament in conjunction with the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee happened every 50 years, and and when that date hit, It was kind of like hitting a giant reset button for the whole country. At the time of that year, it was a time where all debts were wiped clean and all the Israelites were given a fresh start. So, for the individual living in Israel, that year meant the freedom to return to their ancestral lands. It was a year of rest for not only them, but for their land. It meant that all their debts were canceled. And it also meant freedom from bondage, freedom from being in servitude. So with all this well ingrained in their thinking, those living in exile would have collectively heard the word liberty to mean freedom from their debts. Not their financial debts, but the debts to their sin, being forgiven by God that God would set them free from bondage and oppression, not only physically, but also from their sins, and that they would be allowed to return home and to rest with the Lord forever in his abundant provision for them. Okay. So with that background in mind, we're going to fast forward to the first century. Why did Luke include that story of Jesus' reference to Isaiah at this point in his gospel. Well, like Isaiah, Luke had a certain audience in mind. In general, he has believers in mind, but specifically, he has first century believers who, like Isaiah's audience, were living in the midst of tremendous oppression who are struggling to live out their identity as God's people in a confusing and hostile environment. And with this audience in mind, Luke very purposefully provides an accurate retelling of both the historical and the theological events that took place. But Luke doesn't just retell the facts. He he shows how each event builds one upon the other. And in that sense, how each event worked together in pointing to or fulfilling God's promises uh, for his people. All which ultimately point to the complete fulfillment of those promises in the Christ Jesus. Again, here we see that word liberty being used to emphasize not only the comprehensiveness, but also the complete fulfillment of those promises. For instance, when Jesus reaches back and he references Isaiah, he not only references Isaiah 61, but also 58.6 as well. We read, picking up in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. It's Isaiah 61. Now watch how he inserts 586 to set at liberty again, emphasizing liberty, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, returning back to 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. by incorporating 586, emphasizing liberty. Jesus is making it abundantly clear and emphasizing to his people that they have been freed from every kind of yoke. They have been freed from every kind of oppression, comprehensive and complete. And by including Jesus' reference to Isaiah at this point in his gospel, Luke's aim is to strengthen these believers in the midst of the uncertainties and hostilities of their own environment to assure them of the certainty of what they've been taught and also to encourage them to stay the course. Let me repeat that. To assure them of the certainty of what they've been taught and to encourage them to stay the course. For even though they are being vehemently opposed by the world around them, in Christ These believers are in harmony with God, with His purposes, and with His promised means of salvation. And as a result, they can rest in the Lord no matter matter what kind of uncertainties or opposition they face. So, okay. Taking all of that, we covered a lot of ground, a lot of history, a a lot of background. How does all of that apply to us today? Well, I I don't think that we can yet say that we are living in um, a culture of of, uh, tremendous opposition, of oppression. But I do think that we can safely say that we can identify with Luke's hearers in that we do find ourselves living in an increasingly confusing and hostile environment. And we can also find ourselves struggling in the midst of that to live out our identity as Christians. So, like Luke hears, <clears throat> we also struggle in a culture that seeks to establish and live by, live according to, its own definition of, of morality. I think the, you know we certainly look to the recent Supreme Court ruling or decision on, on marriage as evidence of that, can we not? And like Luke's hears, we can also struggle in a pluralistic culture that not only views all religions as equally valid, but also has begun to respond to Christianity with hostility, for in their estimation of of so arrogantly proclaiming that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. So here we are. We're Christians. Experiencing that, the same age, age-old oppression, but just in a, a different time and, and, a, and a different place. So how are we supposed to stay the course in Christ today? How are we to live out our identity in Christ and the brokenness of our own culture today? First of all, just as Luke encouraged our brothers and sisters in the first century... We need to hold tightly to and rest in the true knowledge of God that we have in Christ Jesus. And then the historical and theological truths that Luke so accurately recorded for us: the truth that the Son of God became man, became flesh, with the purpose of living the perfect life that we could not live, to do what we could not do, to die for our sins. And to pay for those sins, both in his death and his resurrection. The only one who, as in Romans 1 tells us, was declared to be the Son of God, in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Again, who was declared to be the Son of God, in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. This is in contrast to all the other religions in the world except Judaism, which were created by men, men who who died, men who are still dead, and the men whose, whose teachings, persons and teachings apart from Christ, still leave their followers without hope and dead in their sin. So, even like our our first century brothers and sisters that even though they were opposed by the world around them, and just like we are opposed by the world around us, in Christ we can also rest secure in Him, knowing that we're in harmony with God, we're in harmony with His purposes, and we're in harmony with His promised means of salvation, And we can do that no matter what kind of opposition or uncertainties that we face in our own culture. You know, but resting in him doesn't mean that that we're supposed to kind of hunker down, that we're supposed to circle the wagons or isolate ourselves from the world behind high walls. To the contrary, in his prayer in, in John 17... Jesus says to his Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So just as Christ, our gift, was set apart and sent into the world by the Father to shine in this spiritually dark world, so now also we have been set apart and sent into this world In order that the light of Christ, the light of his presence, would shine in and through us as well. You know, not that we ourselves are the gift. We're not the light. We're not the the Christ. But as recipients of that most precious gift, we are to share with others what we ourselves have so abundantly been given. So the question remains how do we share the gift of Christ in a culture that is increasingly confused and actually hostile to Christianity, actually hostile to the gift that we're trying to share? A culture that says Christianity is no longer relevant and that Christians are so terribly arrogant in saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, some practical ways are to defend the truth confidently, but yet winsomely, graciously, and lovingly. You know, as we know, as as believers, we truly are God's sheep. That doesn't mean, though, that we have to be sheepish in our defense of the gospel. In other words, we are not to lack confidence in our defense of the gospel and talking to others about our faith. And frankly, you know, based off of what I've heard and read from the other beliefs, and and I'll include secular science in that as well, Christianity really is the only faith that offers real answers, real answers, reasonable answers to the fundamental questions of life. And that includes the origin of life itself. Romans 1.18, 19, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. In this passage, we see that even in God's created order, it it screams evidence of God. God has made himself, has revealed the evidence of his being in his created order so that men are without excuse. So, so in order to deny that truth, you actually have to suppress that truth. You have to actively suppress that truth. You know, and that, uh, the truth of this, this passage just really jumps out at me as I actually read some of the writings of some of the leading scientists. For instance, Sir Francis Crick, who was one of the co-founders, or co-founders, not a founder, discoverer of the DNA molecule. He actually encourages scientists to suppress the truth when he says, biologists must keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Again. Biologists must keep in mind that what they see was not designed but rather evolved. And when I read that, I get this this mental image of a lab and and a scientist peering through a high-powered microscope into the beautiful intricacies and design of the cells. And he has to keep reminding himself, trying to convince himself, this is not designed. This intricate design was not designed. In other words, there's not a designer. There's not a designer, suppressing the truth. Along that line, Gerald Wald, who was a 1967 Nobel Peace Prize winner in science, said, when it comes to the origin of Earth, life on the Earth, there are only two possibilities, creation and spontaneous generation, or evolution. Evolution was disproved 100 years ago, but that leads us only to supernatural creation. We cannot accept that. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that all life arose spontaneously by chance." You see, Wall had no choice but to choose the impossible because the evidence, the truth, directed him to God of creation and he chose to suppress the truth and rebellion to God. Taking that even a little bit further, Sir Francis Crick, you know, he, he couldn't get himself to either accept God, and he also couldn't accept the impossible alternative that Wald had embraced. So he actually argued that aliens genetically modified their DNA and sent it out from their planet, on bacteria or meteorites, with the hope that it would collide with another planet. It did, and that's why we're here. And brothers and sisters, really? I mean, even in the silliness of that argument, Crick still isn't any better off. He has an answer where the aliens came from. Who made the aliens? Your, brothers and sisters. We have every reason to enter into every fundamental question of life with confidence, full confidence. But remember, when we're engaging the world, we must present the truth with confidence, but graciously and lovingly. So graciously holding on to and proclaiming the truth is one way of sharing the gift of God. Another way, a powerful way, is by the testimony of our own lives. Lives that demonstrate the relevance of Christ in us today. Lives that show evidence of a changed life and satisfying answers to life's biggest questions. Of healing to our very real brokenness and fulfillment to our deepest spiritual needs. You know, we have to keep in mind, though, that Christ will only be real and relevant in the eyes in us and in the eyes of others when our lives are seen. He is seen and changed minds, changed hearts, and changed lives. When our life is seen at what we love most, how we think, the choices that we make the lives that we live, you know, if our our mouths proclaim Jesus but our lives proclaim the world, the world's going to look at us and say, your faith is not relevant to you, and it's certainly not relevant to me either. You know, apart from Christ, we all have this God-sized void in our hearts God-sized void that only Christ can fill, and at some point, the dead teachings of dead men will fail to satisfy. They will fail to answer the fundamental questions of life that they have. They will fail to fill that God-side void in their lives. And it's going to leave them empty, and it's going to leave them looking for answers. And if they see a difference in us, if they see the peace of Christ in us, and they see the evidence of his redemptive work in and through us, they're going to want what we have, and they're going to ask, what's the difference? And we're going to be able to tell them who the difference is. That's going to provide us with the opportunity to lovingly share the gift that we ourselves have received. Brothers and sisters, Christ Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And referring to himself as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus is telling us that he and this message of hope are pertinent to all people and at all times. But our faith in him will be seen as relevant only when we live according to who we are in Him, according to our new nature in Christ. So, as God's chosen means for proclaiming the gospel to the world, the challenge for us, the church today, is to not be enticed by or conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather to stay the course and to actively participate with the Lord in His work in our hearts to make us more and more in the image of the Son, of the gift that we have received, and to live according to our new nature in Him. You know, the uh, age-old opposition to Christ and His church is the same. But so also... Is Christ's mission and now our mission in Him to enter into and shine brightly in the spiritually dark world, such that by His light others might see Him and also recognize their need for Him? So, as we enter into this Advent season, let's consider anew this wondrous, inexpressible gift that we've received that we've been given in Christ Jesus. And let's engage with a renewed vigor, the sharing of that gift, the gift of Christ, to a broken world, to a dark world that so desperately needs him as well. Let's pray. Our dear triune God and Lord, we know that our deepest needs are not met and colorfully wrapped in Material abundance or in a comfortable, trouble free life, but rather in the inexpressible gift of you, dear Jesus. Just as the gift of yourself is inexpressible, so also there are no words to express our gratitude for who you are and what you have done for us. But we are grateful and we do thank you. Lord, we are now yours. All that we are and all that we have are yours. Help us to share well this gracious gift that we ourselves have received. Take us and actively engage us in your ongoing mission to save the lost and to build up your kingdom. Shine brightly in and through us in this dark world that your light, that by your light, others would see you and their need of you. The only sure hope both in this life and the next, that is found in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.